Ron, those uh, choir selections were outstanding. And uh, I don't know if you know or not, folks, but that was it for the summer for the choir. They have ministered to us since uh, last year, September, and they're uh, getting a well-deserved breather here for a couple of months. But I don't know about you, but they have so ministered to me uh, throughout these months, and uh, in particular today. Today was a favorite's day, is that right? These choir numbers were the favorites from the choir that they had sung throughout the year, and, and they were just so well done. Choir members, you're dispersed here, there, and everywhere, I know, but thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for rehearsals week in and week out, whether you felt like it or not, and then coming Sunday morning and singing your heart out and, and ministering to the people of God through music. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you. Open your Bibles to John chapter 16, please. Continuing on here in John's Gospel, I was somebody the other day, I think I've been at this about two and a half years, and we're in chapter 16, so uh, maybe the Lord will come and rescue us from, uh, you know, from this. Uh, we'll see about that. Anyway, this morning, uh, we're going to begin in verse 12 and, um, and go a ways. I've entitled the, uh, the message for this morning, Test the Spirits. Test the Spirits. You know, the church is no stranger to theological controversy. Throughout her history, she has had to hammer out the biblical understanding of various doctrinal issues. And our century is no different than those that have preceded us. There have been major theological issues that have gone through the church in the 20th century that have needed to be worked on and, in fact, still need to be worked on. And one of those questions or theological issues that really burst upon the church like a wave upon the shore in the 20th century had to do with the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The last hundred years have been taken up in large part with that very question. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is His ministry amongst the believers? Why did He come at Pentecost? What is it that He does? Now, we're not going to be able to answer all of that, certainly not this morning. But the passage before us in John 16, verses 12 through 15, bring an important emphasis to, to help answer that question. This is really a key passage that must be considered in order to try to begin to answer that question. And so as we look at this passage together this morning, and uh, we're not going to make it all the way through today, I'll tell you about that in a minute, but as we consider this passage together this morning and next week, I think it will help to bring some clarity to this question. Usually uh, my, uh, my study habits are to work through the passage exegetically and then and then uh, put it together homiletically to be delivered in a, in a sermon. 
And one of the last things I do is write an introduction. And uh, that's why it doesn't say part one in your bulletin, because uh, at the time the bulletin was done, I hadn't written the introduction. But I did that, and when I got done writing the introduction, I came to realize that uh, we may not even get beyond the introduction this morning. So um, that just will bring you back, you know, for the rest, right? We'll set the table at least this morning. So it is a lengthy introduction. I recognize that. But I think it's critical. I think it's important. My, uh, my role here among you at Foothill Bible Church is as a teaching pastor. And the emphasis this morning, I suppose, is on teaching. I want to uh, spend some time with you this morning and give you kind of a history lesson. That's my introduction. I'm going, to, I'm going to work through the last hundred years in an abbreviated form, but it will still take a little while. hundred years is a long time, you know. I want to work through the last hundred years with you with regard to the, to the question of the Holy Spirit within the Christian church. Because I think it's vital to understand where we have come from in order to, to begin to answer the question of, uh, that is who, you know, who is he, what is his role? Because there's a lot of preconceived understandings that have, that have come to us, not because we've exegetically derived them from the scriptures, but for most of us it's because it's a culture and a tradition in which we've perhaps grown up. So we need to understand that before we look at this. So what I'm going to do for you is give you that historical overview. The, um, the way I want to do this is I want to break it down into three waves. I said that it's like a, like a wave crashing on the beach. And so there are, about, there are three waves that have crashed upon the beach of evangelicalism with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and in particular what is His what is his role? So, so let me just talk to you a, a little bit about this first wave. The first wave. And, and there are dates that apply to these waves because there are certain specific historical events that kind of begin and end each wave. So this first wave you could date, if you want to, in your handout, uh, 1906 to 1960. 1906 to 1960. The date is April 18th, 1906. And that is the, is the date that is credited for the beginning of what's called the modern Pentecostal movement. April 18th, 1906. Because on that date, the Apostolic Faith Mission, located on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, had an outbreak of what is called speaking in tongues something unknown in the history of the church for well over a thousand years. The pastor of this little mission church was a man by the name of William Seymour, born in 1870, lived till 1922. It's not particularly important, but anyway, in close connection with his mentor, Charles Parham, they had together developed the doctrine that speaking in tongues was evidence of what they call a baptism in the Spirit. So a revival began there at Azusa Street. It began in 1906. This revival is credited with lasting three years into 1909. 
And during that three years, thousands of people from all over the world visited this little mission church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. They poured in to to experience, to observe what was going on, the phenomena that was being manifested in this place. Now, shortly after this revival began, there was an irreparable breach between Seymour and Parham. And And the breach occurred over Seymour's refusal to prohibit seances and occult trances which were occurring as part of this Azusa Street revival. They weren't the fundamental core of it, but they were they were swirling on the edges of it, and Seymour would was refused to put his foot down and to prohibit such things from happening. Now, this revival here from 1906 to 1909 is is virtually universally credited with being the the beginning of the worldwide Pentecostal movement. It's called the Azusa Street Revival. Now, the theological roots of Pentecostalism go back prior to 1906. They actually lie in what's called the Holiness Movement, pioneered by an Englishman by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley lived in the early, well, actually lived through most of the 18th century. He was born in 1703, died in 1791. John Wesley was a tireless evangelist. And John Wesley promoted the idea of what he called, quote, Christian perfectionism. Christian perfectionism. And and basically, the way Wesley defined this is that Christian perfectionism was a freedom that a Christian or a believer could could achieve where they would become free from self-will and would desire nothing but the holy and perfect will of God. That's what Wesley said. He said it would be possible in this life due to the influence of the Holy Spirit and and to giving yourself in obedience and submission to Him, that you could be freed from self-will and that you would then desire only that which is holy and that which is God's will, His perfect will. Now, in the really into the early 19th century, there was a man by the name of Charles Finney. I'm stringing beads together here for you. There was a man by the name of Charles Finney, famous American evangelist. And Charles Finney picked up on Wesley's theological idea and kind of rolled the ball forward himself. And what Finney said was that um, this, this... notion of Wesley's of a second work of grace in your life which freed you from self-will, he tied together with with the biblical concept of the baptism in the Spirit. So what Finney said was you become freed from your self-will, you would become perfect when you receive the second blessing or the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's how he defined it. Now, as the Pentecostal movement grew, and it grew outside of traditional evangelicalism. What I mean by that is it was, it was not part of Presbyterianism or, or um, various other uh, Christian denominations. It sort of operated on its own out here. It was even outside of Methodism, even though its theological roots 
go back into Methodism. And so through the early part of the, really the first half of the 20th century, that's where Pentecostalism resided, out there um, sort of as a, a stepchild of, of evangelicalism. And there was an emphasis in Pentecostalism on speaking in tongues. That was a major emphasis for them. And then eventually the, the emphasis was added of divine healing. So Pentecostalism became known experientially through tongue speaking and then the addition of what they would call divine healing or healing services. So that's sort of the, the origin of the modern healing services that I'm sure every one of you are familiar with, at least to some degree. Now, as is wont to happen, charlatans attach themselves when they see opportunity to enrich themselves. And, and so that happened in the healing movements. There were many, many charlatans associating themselves here in the 1920s and 30s and 40s with these, were, with these healing crusades. And uh, actually in 1917, so it even goes earlier than that, 1917, B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, wrote a book called Counterfeit Miracles in which he exposes both the theological um, fallacy of the, of the healing movement and the, the um, observational uh, reality that most people left those services the same way they came. Sick, broken, devastated. Now the healing ministry uh, got a huge boost in 1948 when a man by the name of Oral Roberts, and that's probably a name you're familiar with, Oral Roberts began these healing crusades. And eventually, he began to televise them. Now, Oral Roberts, you'll remember, he was quite, uh, quite popular and quite well-known. And then uh, he, and he kind of self-destructed in 1977. He claimed to have had a vision of a 900-foot Jesus who told him to build a 60-story medical center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in order to, find, in order to cure cancer. And so, based on this vision of the 900-foot Jesus, he and his supporters went forth and began to build this massive hospital edifice. Well, it was uh, severely underfunded and underoccupied, and they were in tremendous financial chaos. And, and Oral Roberts came back out and he said, God has appeared to me again, and he has said, if you don't raise the money to finish this thing, I'm going to kill you. And... Um, that caused, among his supporters, donations to pour in, and eventually they got themselves out from under their bank loans that were going to crush them. Their final payment came in from a dog track owner for $1.3 million, and that, so I guess God didn't kill him at that point. But the building was never occupied. The cure for cancer was never found, and the place was later demolished. So that is your first wave. Now we get to what I'll call a second wave. The second wave began in 1960 and is generally credited by historians as running to 1982. 
Now, as I said earlier, whereas the Pentecostal movement was for the most part outside of the mainline denominations, the second wave, also known as the charismatic movement, very much contributed to the mainstreaming of Pentecostal theology. It went from being a stepchild out here to coming into all the major Christian denominations. And not just in America, but worldwide. Worldwide. It's really, again, historians credit it with beginning in 1951. In one sense, I'll give you the date, 1960. I'll tell you why in a minute. But in 1951, there was another Southern California. And by the way, it's really fascinating as you work through this. Uh, Southern California just keeps coming up. Okay? You know, not Antioch, not Rome, you know, not Carthage. Los Angeles is the founding place of all of this. Okay? It's all started right here. 1951, there was a Southern California millionaire businessman by the name of Demos Sakarian. Or Shakarian, I guess it is. S-H-A-K-A-R-I-A-N. Shakarian. And he launched what is known as the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. I'm sure you've heard of that. And this Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International had a stated purpose. And its stated purpose was to take the Pentecostal message, the message of tongues and healings, and via non-sectarian lunches and conferences, bring it into the mainline denominations. So that's what they were about. Now, on April 3rd, 1960, and that's why I told you this second wave is generally credited with 1960, on April 3rd, 1960, the charismatic movement went public. The full gospel men's business international things were sort of an underground movement. It wasn't open, what they were doing. But on April 3rd, 1960, it went very much public when an Episcopal priest by the name of Father Dennis Bennett announced to his Van Nuys, California congregation that he had personally spoken in tongues and that he believed that this was the pattern for the church. Okay, 1960. Later, 1966, the charismatic movement penetrated Roman Catholic Church where the laity and the priesthood had become open to new ideas on church renewal through Vatican II. So one of the, one of the outgrowths of the Vatican II was an openness and a willingness to embrace charismatic theology. And so it moved rapidly into the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Charis, the charismatic movement differs from old-line Pentecostalism in several very significant ways. Okay, so here they are. First, the charismatic movement rejects the necessity of speaking in tongues as a sign of the baptism of the Spirit. Pentecostalism is, Pentecostalism is defined as requiring the speaking of tongues to signify the, the baptism of the Spirit. The charismatic movement says it is not necessary to speak in tongues in order to be baptized with the Spirit, or to evidence your baptism in the Spirit. All right, but tongue speaking still does remain a very important element in, in many, if not most, charismatic circles. All right, so it's not required, but it is, it is uh, common. As I say, the day the charismatic movement has penetrated virtually every mainline denomination, okay, virtually every church in the world 
has been influenced by the charismatic movement. And you know how the influence has come most often? It's come through music. It's come through music. As you, as you look at the praise choruses, and, and I'm not criticizing praise choruses, okay? Don't misunderstand me what I'm saying. But as you look at the publishing houses of most of the praise choruses, those are charismatic publishing houses. Okay? So virtually every church in the world now, wherever you go in the world and the evangelicals gather together and they sing, it's amazing they sing the same choruses. The stuff we sing here, uh, when we were in India, they're singing there too. Okay? So this movement has gone in, in many, many directions. Now, it is not monolithic. The charismatic movement is not a monolith. That means that there's not a single statement of faith in which all charismatic churches sign up to. Okay? It's a movement, not a denomination. But it does have certain distinctives. Certain distinctives. And so let me, let me give you some of these distinctives. The first distinctive of the charismatic movement is what they call experiencing Jesus in a, in a personal encounter that puts you into the position of receiving the baptism of the Spirit. And then when you receive the baptism of the Spirit, Jesus is, goes from being just your Savior to becoming your Lord. So it's this kind of two-step um, relationship with Christ. You come to faith in Jesus Christ and He becomes your Savior. And then, when you receive the baptism of the Spirit, He, he becomes not only your Savior, but He becomes your Lord. So this, this idea of there's, a, there's a, a, a greater dependence upon Him, a greater willingness to be obedient to Him, a greater um, level of holiness in your lives. Okay, Remembering, it traces itself back to John Wesley. Okay, Second... This, um, this, you receive this power that you, you get as a, from the baptism of the Spirit, and that will bring you to victorious Christian living. All right, so that's a little more explicit. You want to be victorious in your Christian life, you need the baptism of the Spirit. So we have Christians that are victorious who have received the baptism of the Spirit. We have Christians who are not victorious who have not received the baptism of the Spirit. And so immediately you see within a congregation, you have two kinds of Christians. Those that have and those that don't have. Beyond that, worship is at a higher dimension because of the baptism of the Spirit. And, and many times, these are their words, not my words. Okay, baptism or worship operates at a higher dimension when you've received this baptism of the Spirit. So now in the same congregation, we've got some people that are worshiping God better than others, higher level than others. Furthermore, your prayer is more fervent and successful when you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, including the ability to pray in unknown tongues. All right, so now your prayer life is stronger, deeper, more effective if you've received the baptism. Beyond that, um, again, this is not a monolith, but beyond that, most charismatic churches would say that the sign gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, 8, and 10 are still operational in the church today. Things like prophecy, tongue-speaking, healing, discerning of spirits, on and on and on. Beyond that, they would say that, that God is continuing to give new revelation. Okay? God is speaking continually today, directly and regularly to His people, just like in the first century. God's still talking. 
Okay, God's still talking. So the Bible, they have a high regard for the Bible. The Bible is exalted. The Bible is believed as the, to be the source of divine revelation. But God also reveals deeper truths to those who have the anointing. So if you've got the anointing, the Bible speaks at a deeper level to you. God can show you things in the Bible that nobody else who doesn't have the anointing can see. All right. Further, is there is an emphasis on demonic activity as well as the Christians need to engage in what's called deliverance ministries. Christians need to be actively involved, the charismatic movement would, would teach, in the idea of delivering people from the, from the demonic world. Okay? Casting out demons. And then finally, evangelism. Strong emphasis on evangelism. And on the practice of evangelism, not just talking about it, but doing it. Strong emphasis on evangelism with the idea that if you've received the anointing, you've received the baptism of the Spirit, your evangelism is more effective. So you, you operate at a, at a more effective level of evangelism. You're a, you're a greater witness for Christ. You'll see more fruit to your witness when you have received this anointing. Okay, So those are the kind of theological touch points of the charismatic movement not all charismatic churches believe all of this as i said it's not a statement of faith but this is these are broad and general statements and observations now that takes us to what's called the third wave okay the charismatic movement uh, gave way to a third wave in 1982 and the third wave at least according to everything that i've read so far is still upon us so we are still operating in what's called the third wave of Pentecostalism. The third wave, also known as the Signs and Wonders Movement, is officially credited with beginning in 1982. All right. In 1982, a man by the name of John Wimber, W-I-M-B-E-R, he died uh, in 1997, so he's gone now, but he left his association with Calvary Chapel. He was a pastor in association with Calvary Chapel. And he left to pastor a church in Anaheim, California, called the Vineyard. So we've gone from Azusa Street, Los Angeles, right, to Van Nuys, out to uh, Anaheim. I told you, it's all Los Angeles, man. It's all right here. All right, so he, he founded this church called the Vineyard Church in Anaheim, California, 1982. Also in 1982, he joined the adjunct faculty of Fuller Seminary. And there at Fuller Seminary, he began teaching a class that was entitled Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth. It was in their catalog. You can look this stuff up. It was in their catalog, 1982. <coughs> Excuse me. And part of the class time for Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth, they would include healing the sick and casting out demons in class. Now, as you might imagine, that was a pretty popular elective, okay? Take the class, and if you've got a bad leg, they're going to deal with it in class, Dennis. So that's a good deal, right? So this was a very popular class. Um, in the context of his time there at Fuller Seminary, Wimber was connected to a man by the name of C. Peter Wagner, 
Okay, another name that you may or may not be aware of. Wagner is considered an expert on church growth, and he was involved with the Fuller School of World, or excuse me, the Fuller World School of Missions. I want to get it right. Okay, so Wagner was with Fuller as well. By the way, that class, uh, after a few years, was closed down. It got to be a nuthouse, and so they, uh, <clears throat> they shut the whole thing down. But it was Wagner who, in 1983, coined the names first, second, and third waves. So that's where that comes from. First wave of Pentecostalism, second wave, third wave. That's C. Peter Wagner's terminology. Now, Wimber, let's talk about him for a minute. <clears throat> Wimber's theological view was that the reason the present church's evangelistic efforts are so ineffective is because they are not accompanied by what he called, and I quote, an inbreaking of the kingdom, end quote. Wimber said that, that you go out and you share the gospel with your family, your friends, your neighbors, whatever, and you don't see results. And the reason you don't see results is because the kingdom hasn't broken in in that encounter. And the way the kingdom breaks in is through signs and wonders, just like the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. All right, so Wimber coined a term called power encounters. Power encounter. He actually wrote a, a book that became very popular called Power Evangelism. And the thesis behind Wimber's book is that, is that what the church is lacking is the supernatural manifestation of the power of God like could be seen in the life of Christ. And if we had that, our evangelism would turn the world upside down. Okay, so that's his premise. Now, under Wimber's leadership, the Anaheim Vineyard Church grew rapidly. became a mega church, thousands. Okay? In the process, they spawned many, many, many other churches, indeed, perhaps thousands of other churches, okay, which are affiliated through uh, something called the Association of Vineyard Churches. It's kind of a quasi-denomination. Right, the Vineyard Movement, maybe you've heard it called that. Now, this association of vineyard churches, they do produce their own statement of faith. There is a real statement of faith to, to, uh, to be a vineyard church. Okay? And they produce their own leadership. They train them. And they, do many, they act in many ways just like a denomination. I'll give you an example. In 1995, the leadership of, of the Vineyard Association disfellowshipped a church called the Toronto Vineyard Church. It was in Toronto, Canada. And the reason they disfellowshipped them is because they would not cease practicing their unbiblical practices that became associated with what's called the Toronto Blessing. Maybe you have heard of that. That's where people are barking like dogs and, I mean, and beyond. All kinds of incredible stuff was going on in the Toronto Blessing. Okay? It was supposed to be a touchdown of the Holy Spirit of God, and it began to manifest itself in the, in the most bizarre behaviors and activities. Okay? Toronto Blessing. So... The Vineyard Association, it is neither Pentecostal nor is it charismatic in a classical sense. Okay, it's kind of drawn from both. It's pulled out of both. They have a number of doctrinal positions that I think are quite concerning. For example, they uh, believe that the sign gifts, 
gifts of prophecy, tongues, healings, miracles are all in common continuance today. Beyond that, they are big advocates of what's called the spiritual warfare movement in which they teach that Christians can be demon-possessed, thus the need to cast them out. Okay, so there's many deliverance ministries going on, casting out demons in every direction. Also, the vineyard movement is highly ecumenical. Highly ecumenical, meaning that it, that it is an experience rather than doctrine that draws people to it. And so the vineyard movement moves very easily uh, across denominations. All right? And they're known for what they call power evangelism. That is, for evangelism to be truly effective today, especially in the third world, it must be accompanied by these inbreaks of the kingdom of God, these power encounters. Things like, uh, you know, when Jesus would, uh, would heal people, give sight to the blind, you know, restore hearing to the deaf, uh, uh, someone lost their, you know, a withered limb or whatever, he would, he would do that kind of thing. And it, it has gone to the point where you'll hear, particularly coming out of the mission field, they'll talk about raising the dead. That's kind of a common theme now in the third world missionary context is that so-and-so knows so-and-so who knew so-and-so who heard from so-and-so that this guy raised the dead. And when you begin to pursue those kinds of stories, that's exactly what you get is no first-hand accounts. You hear a lot of third-hand accounts of dead people coming to life. All right? So, not bad, huh? That's my introduction. Okay? That kind of sets the pace for where we are today. You've heard much of this. You've, some of you have experienced some of it. That's... That's where we are. That's where the church is today. And that takes us to, again, what is a key issue for the church. That is, what is the purpose and role, ministry of the Holy Spirit of God? Is it these things that we've been talking about, or is it something else? All right? There's a lot of confusion in the church today about the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What does he do? There is a level of mysticism that has arisen within evangelicalism that I think is very concerning. That is the idea that people want to feel God. I just want to be touched by God. And if I can't have that, I'll have to be touched by an angel and that'll work too, right? You know, make a TV show out of it. People want to touch God. They want to reach out to the transcendent one and, and sense him, feel him. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to, to sense and feel the presence of God, is there? I mean, the, the response to that is not to flee into some sort of cold, dead orthodoxy, but it is to understand how we sense and feel and touch God. And it is not through mysticism. It is not through the shutting off of the rational mind and pursuing God in some unrational way or non-rational way. Maybe I should say it that way. At the same time, mysticism is rising in the church. The, the, the church's adherence and respect for the apostolic witness as recorded in the Word of God, is declining. Don't tell me what the Bible says. 
I felt it. I saw it. I heard it. My senses now become the governing principle of what is reality and what is not. Don't give me Bible arguments. Don't twist me around with doctrinal statements or exegetical considerations. I know what I saw. I know what I heard. I know what I felt. It's a slippage. Slippage in the, in the respect, in the authority. People will still affirm the Bible as the inerrant word of God, authoritative in, in everything, yet their life experience has become the interpreter of the Bible rather than the Bible becoming the interpreter of their life experience. And that is a huge problem. Huge problem. Now, if you, uh, if you want to see proof of all of this, all you've got to do is turn the television on, okay, to a particular network, all right? And you will see things that are absolutely shocking. Claims that are so fantastic, they'd be laughable if they weren't so sad. You will see charlatans parading around, spouting Bible verses out of context, whipping up the crowd to a fevered pitch, and then lining their pockets with the gold they fleeced from their congregations. Shocking. Maddening. It's dangerous. Because, beloved, it's like living on Hershey bars. At first, it feels really good. Tastes good. Feels good. Got a great level of energy. But after the sugar high wears off, you crash and burn. And there are untold numbers of people who have crashed and burned. Because you can't live on that kind of high-octane stuff for very long. Experience won't carry you through Monday morning. And that takes us to John chapter 16. The verses before us here in John 16, verses 12 to 15. Jesus gives us the twofold ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we will understand and imitate His his ministry in our own lives. Okay, Jesus gives us two statements with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that are just crucial in understanding who He is, what He does, and if we are to imitate His ministry, what ours should look like as well. This is loaded. First aspect, and we're just barely going to scratch the surface. The first aspect is that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. It sounds so obvious, you wouldn't think you would even need to say it. But the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. That is his role. That is his ministry. He is the revealer of Jesus. Verse 12. 
I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. Jesus says here in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you. He's already told them a lot of things. I mean, even the same night over in uh, verse 14, verse 26, chapter 14, verse 26, speaking again of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says that he, when the helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He has already taught them a lot. He's been walking with them for three and a half years. And every time they walk along with Jesus, you know, I just get the picture. He does something and they're mystified and he turns around and he says, you know what I did? And they go, no. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we do, but we don't understand why. And he explains it to them. It, is a, it has been a constant life-on-life discipleship process stretching out for, for three years. He's told them a lot. But here at the very end, again, look at verse 12. There's many more things to say to you. There's a lot I haven't told you yet. A lot I haven't told you. Beyond that, you cannot bear them now. You can't bear them now. Even if I were to tell them to you, you couldn't handle it. He's saying, you're not ready to hear it. This uh, word bear, right? You, you cannot bear them now. It has the idea of picking up a burden and carrying it. It's used that way over in, uh, in John 19.17. It, a stone, pick up a stone. John 10.31. Uh, but here it's, he's speaking figuratively. He's speaking figuratively. And what he's saying in the context here is, is that there, you are unable to receive any additional revelation that I would give you. And you are unable, prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit, to really perceive and live out that which I've already given you. I mean, I've already given you so much information, and you can't even digest what you've got. And i got way more for you. Way more. I have a mission. I have a message. You're not ready for it all yet. Things that you're not ready for, for example. You're not yet ready to overcome your inherent pride that would exclude the Gentiles from the grace of God. You are still locked into this notion that somehow the Jew is favored by God above all the rest of mankind and it is to be a Jew is to, to be favored of God above all else. 
You're not ready to understand the implications of my coming and what I'm about to do makes God available to all mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not that God so loved Judaism that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever shall become a Jew will be acceptable before God. God's love extends to the world. You're not ready to really understand that and to process the implications of that. Beyond that, you really don't yet recognize that the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees has really come to pass. That which I warned you of. I mean, the last you saw, we were entering Jerusalem in a, in a majestic Palm Sunday experience and the people were throwing the palm branches down and they were calling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and they were ready to make me king. And for two days I've been in the temple teaching and instructing and, and sharply contrasting what it is I'm offering to the Pharisaical Judaism in which you are still somewhat enamored. And you don't understand. You don't understand that something has happened this week. Whereas on Sunday they were calling for my coronation, in a couple of hours they're going to be calling for my crucifixion. And the reason I know that you don't understand it is because earlier in this supper together, you were still clamoring about who's going to have first place in the kingdom. And not a one of you would wash anybody's feet, including mine. You don't get it. Yet. You don't get it. You don't understand that the kingdom has been postponed. Furthermore, you don't really yet understand that the old covenant has been fulfilled. That the ritual has to pass away. That the veil of the temple in a matter of a few hours will be rent from top to bottom. That access into the presence of God will be no longer through the Aaronic priesthood. And the sacrifice, the day of atonement. God is no longer separated by shadow and mystery and ritual and ceremony. You don't yet really understand that... The law of Judaism is passing. Oh, there's much that you don't understand. There's much that you're not yet ready to receive. There is much work still to be done in you. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. When Pentecost comes, things are going to change. There's so much more to say and so little time to say it. Beloved, we need to be like Bereans. We need to search the scriptures to see if these things be true. We need to not be afraid of theology and doctrine. 
we need to understand that there is no salvation in anyone else but Jesus Christ. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And all that we know of Jesus Christ is found here in the written apostolic record. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God in a saving way, close, personal, intimate way? You will find him here in the pages of a Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. So we will be closing here and sing together. Perhaps there is something that is eating at your heart you want to talk about of a spiritual nature. We will have counselors available over there by that lighted cross after service. You come and you talk with them and they would be pleased to open the Word of God with you and to minister to you to your spiritual needs. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You have not left us to flounder around in experientialism, bouncing from one extraordinary claim to another chasing after you, but never finding you, seeking after a close walk with you and yet finding it so elusive. Lord God, thank you that you revealed yourself in a book, a book that we can have with us, that we can read, that we can meditate on, that we can memorize, that we can fill our hearts and minds with, Thank you that your Holy Spirit ministers to us through that word. Thank you, our Father, that that word is the means by which new life is brought forth. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Father, we do not worship this book. But our Father, we do humble ourselves before the God of this book. And pray that he would be exalted in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.